0: As we continue to work our way through this very long blessing that Paul gives here at the outset of the book of Ephesians, picking up this evening in verse 11. Hear now the reading of God's word In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this evening thankful, O Lord, that you are a big God, uh, but also that you are a good God and that you have revealed yourself in your word. Uh, Father, we would ask for your help. We ask, O Lord, that you would uh, strengthen us by the power uh, of your word and by the power of its preaching. We pray, O Lord, that the Spirit would indeed be at work in our hearts. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Back in 2007, uh, maybe one of the most popular and memorable commercials aired fairly regularly on cable satellite TV. A commercial that, after its airing, yielded, I think, about $30 million in donations. And if you've watched TV within the past decade and a half, obviously you will remember this commercial. You remember uh, the commercial put out by the AP. Uh, ASPCA, the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, right? It was a commercial full of these really adorable pets uh, put kind of to the, in the background, uh, the song In the Arms of the Angel of an Angel by Sarah McLaughlin. And it really was a a perfect commercial uh, because the pictures of these adorable pets and with the the, the soft kind of soul-crushing music in the background, right? It really stirred, it really did stir our emotions, right? It stirred our thoughts. A lot of you are laughing because you remember it, right? It worked, right? Those those elements of the commercial actually kind of drew you to do something and obviously drew a lot of people to do something. People donated over 30 million dollars because of this commercial, but it forced people to think right things and to feel right emotions that led to right actions. And much of the Bible really does the same thing, yet without even giving an imperative or a command. Right, a lot of the Bible is just simply God revealing himself, revealing who he is, revealing what he is like, revealing what he has done. And in many of the passages of the Bible, we don't have any imperatives, any commands to go along with that revelation of who God is. That's what Ephesians 1 is. That's what Ephesians 1, especially this blessing in verses 3 through 10 is. It's God himself writing about himself, about his grace, about his love, about his his actions, his salvific actions towards his people. And there's no command in sight. Right? There are no imperatives in verses 3 through 14. But yet, Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking about who God is and what God is like, does cause us to think right thoughts and feel good emotions, which by implication really does stir our hearts to actions, if nothing else, the action of worship. That's what this passage is doing, right? It's explaining who God is and what he is like. And it really does stir our hearts. And and really, in kind of a word, that's what this sermon is designed to do. It's, It's designed to set forth who God is and what he is like and what he has done that we might think right thoughts and feel right emotions and be led to right action, all right, Paul's been doing this for really the whole book of Ephesians up to this point, right? we've We've covered up we've covered ten verses thus far, and the entirety of the book has really centered around really one idea: God's grace, specifically His His grace to His people and how He saved them. We see that really even in the greeting, where we meet Paul and we meet. The church at Ephesus, and we realize, wait, both of these, uh, both Paul and this church, they were pagans and they hated God, and God's grace has now transformed them into something new and something better, into an apostle and into a church. And then in verses three through six, we we get to explore how God Himself, before the foundation of the world, chose His people in Christ to be predestined. He, he predestined them as adoption or for adoption as his sons. Our salvation is indeed rooted in God's grace from eternity past. And then in verses 7 to 10, Paul blesses God because we have redemption in Christ Jesus because of the forgiveness of sins provided by his blood. These are things that God has done and so what to this put up to this point in the book, God's gracious work in salvation, in saving his people has been at the very center, and really, truly will be at the very center of the book from this point forward. Ephesians is about God. Ephesians is about his grace. Ephesians is about how he's raised dead people to life, saving them from his wrath, saving them from their sin, saving from them from, from slavery, and superabundantly in the person of Christ Jesus, giving them grace after grace, lavishly pouring it out upon them. And so Paul's already proved that God's grace is great. Right? It's proven in our salvation but we get kind of a new idea in verses 11 and 14 really this this kind of this last little paragraph in the blessing and it's this idea of of an inheritance right we he's already proven that God's grace is really good because he has saved us freely Right? He's done that. He's, he's provided salvation. He's done that fully and effectively and finally, but here we learn that he's done more than that as well. Right? He's given us an inheritance. Right? The fact that God has given his people salvation proves that he's great in the first place, but the fact that he's given over and abundantly us, to us an inheritance proves that he's exceptionally great. God is, is gracious. That's proven in salvation, but he's also exceptionally gracious in that he's given us more than just salvation, but this, this idea of an inheritance, something that I receive, something that I will receive as we learn later on in the book uh, on the day of our redemption. We could say that we've not only been given more than we deserve, but we've been given more than more than we deserve. I mean, God's grace is exceptional. You can probably picture this if you've ever been to Five Guys. Right, you walk into Five Guys and you go up to the, you go up to the counter, you go to the cashier, you order your burger and admittedly you pay a little bit more for a fast food burger than you'd like to. But you also order some fries and a drink or whatever. You pay, you get your, you know, you get your cup and you go around, you fill your drink, you get some malt vinegar for those fries that you just ordered and some ketchup and you go put it down on your table and you kind of wander up to the counter. And so they call the guy's number that was right ahead of you. But by that time, you know, the guy who's cooked your burger has already kind of wrapped it up. He's putting it in the bag. And then he passes it to the fry guy, this guy who all he does is fry potatoes all day long and scoop them into the bag. But what he does, right, when he gets the bag is he takes this paper cup and he's in his little French fry scooper and he fills that paper cup full of, full of French fries, and he puts that cup in your bag. Well, that's great. You know, that's what I expected at every other restaurant. But when you go to Five Guys, you don't just get one cup of French fries. Right? When he puts that cup of French fries in that bag, he then takes the whole bag and the scoop and then scoops one, two, three. Right? He just keeps on giving French fries. Right? God's grace is like that. Right? God's grace is like that. He not only gives us, his his grace is not only great, but it's exceptionally great. Five guys not only gives French fries, but they give an exceptional amount of french fries. Such is proven in God's grace. Have you ever thought about the fact that God not only gives us an inheritance or he not only gives us salvation but he gives us an inheritance in addition to a salvation I mean this really is a sweet thought to think for most of us in the room we never have received an inheritance and it's likely that we probably will never receive any significant inheritance and that's okay that's the lot that God has given us and that's okay we're not mad at that but God Out of sheer grace, right, wielding his supreme and sovereign power, has ordered things in such a way that upon my entrance into heaven or upon the return of Christ Jesus, I will receive an inheritance that will never pass away and one that's way greater than anything this world could ever provide. And those of us who have received an inheritance in this life, right, we've come to the realization that one day, well, yeah, it's going to be someone else's inheritance, it's gonna go away. It's not something I can take with me to heaven. But the inheritance that God gives is one that, that's, that's eternal, that, that's spiritual in nature, that will never pass away, that's worth, is greater than anything that we've ever experienced here. I mean, what a sweet thought to think that that's, that, that's who God is, right? that he gives Exceptionally. When I asked the question a moment ago, you know, have we ever really thought about this this idea of an inheritance? Well, probably not. As I was reading this passage a couple of weeks ago, kind of looking ahead to what uh, what I was preaching, you know, I was like, when's the last time I've thought about you know the idea of an inheritance? Well, probably about the last time that I read either Romans eight or Ephesians one or Ephesians four or somewhere else where it's mentioned. It's not a thought that really enters the Christian's mind, I don't think, uh, very often why is that? Right? Why are we so reluctant to think about this idea of an inheritance? Why, why, why don't we think in those terms more often? And I think really there's two answers to that question, both of which are answered from this text. And I think the first answer to you know, why don't we think about this more often is probably because most of us think that it's really kind of just too far out there in the future. To really do me any good, right? The, yeah, the little voice, you know, comes comes in the back of your head, and, you know. Say, well, <clears throat> well, Pastor, yeah, you know, the idea of an inheritance, you know, that, that's good, that's great, and all. But really, you know, it's quite a ways out. I mean, really, th- there's a lot of life to live between now and when I get my inheritance. Fair, you know, it's likely. Admittedly, that there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of water that goes under the bridge before we actually receive this inheritance that God's talking about. Right? Some of us would say that it's maybe too far out to really even consider. And in addition to that, right, any inheritance that we might receive in this life from you know, a parent or a sibling or someone else that we love usually comes at a great cost. A great emotional pain an immense amount of pain right someone has to die someone has to pass away in order for us to receive any kind of inheritance some of us probably know this already you know you've received the inheritance from your parents but it did come at a great cross there's this gaping hole in your chest which hurts And so we say, you know, Pastor, yeah, the idea of an inheritance is good and all, but unless the Lord takes me tonight or tomorrow or this week, you know, I've got a lot of bridges to cross before I get there. I've got a lot of pain to deal with before I actually get to grab hold of that heavenly inheritance. In other words, the pain that I'll have to deal with between here and there often kind of dims the light at the end of the tunnel, which is my inheritance. But this passage really, especially in verses 13 and 14, teaches that the only way that I'll ever be able to wade through that pain that lies between me and my inheritance is really by God's grace, and particularly by the Holy Spirit with whom I am sealed and who is the guarantee of my inheritance, right? God has given me an inheritance, but in the person of the Holy Spirit has also assured me that I will make it to that day in which I will receive it, Verse 13 states that, that in Christ, when I heard the gospel and believed it, that right then and there, I was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That term seal, right? It's a loaded term. It's a theological term. It has a few different theological meanings, perhaps. But I think really in the context of the Holy Spirit as not only seal, but also guarantee in verse 14, it communicates this idea, again, of assurance, Right? The Father's putting the Holy Spirit inside of His people is our assurance that we will make it to that day when, we will, when we're supposed to receive our inheritance. Right? It communicates the idea of not only a certain salvation, but the certainty of receiving that which God has given to me. In, in the ancient world, kings would often uh, seal their, their letters, their communications with, with wax and their signet ring. And one of the, one of the purposes for that was, you know, to, to authenticate, right, to, to ensure that it really was the king's message. But another purpose was, was so that it actually got to its destination unsealed, right, so that it arrived where it was supposed to arrive without being broken open, without the contents being, uh, with, uh, without being explored, Right? This is the same thing that many of us who are really too cheap to buy the nice envelopes that you just rip the sticky thing off the lid, you know, off the top the flap or whatever. Those of us who, you know, have to lick our envelopes and then close them up and sit. We do that. Why? Because we don't want the envelope to be opened before it gets to its destination. Right? We want it to arrive safe and secure and untouched by anyone or anything other than that which it was destined for that which it was purposed for that's what paul's communicating with this idea of the holy spirit god's putting the holy spirit inside of our hearts is the assurance that we will make it through all of that pain and sorrow and wade through all of the mess between now and our day of redemption the day in which we receive our inheritance And so he speaks of the Holy Spirit as, as a seal, but also as a guarantee, right? A down payment, right? When you provide a down payment on your home, whenever you buy it with the bank, what are you, what are you promising? I'm giving you this money, but, it's, but this money is promising that I'll give you the rest of the money, right? God is, is saying that the Holy Spirit in us is the promise Him promising that which is to come, which is our inheritance. And so God's grace is not only extravagant, it's not only uh, exceptional, but God's grace also assures. He doesn't just give the gift of the inheritance. But in verses 13 to 14, we learn he also promises and provides the way in which we shall receive it. And the Holy Spirit being present inside of us is proof of that, which I think is actually very helpful. Yes, it doesn't change the fact that our inheritance, that we receive it on the day of redemption, far in the future, unless the Lord has different plans. But it it is helpful to know that that what God has given me assures me that I will make it to that day. Which I think is helpful for some of us who struggle with thinking that that every season of suffering is an insurmountable season of suffering. right? That every negative event in our lives is an insurmountable negative event. And where God is saying, no, the, the, the... I've given you your the Spirit of God, and He lives inside of you as a testimony, as as visible proof, and in His outworkings of His fruits. When you see those things, you also know that I will give you what I've said I will give you. That you will make it to the day of redemption. That you will make it to the day in which you will receive that which I've promised. And so, I think these thoughts are very, very, also very sweet and helpful when we do struggle. And when suffering does seem, it's like it, it's, it, whether it's a mole or it's a mountain, whichever is the case, God's promise assures us that we shall make it to the other side and the Holy Spirit inside of us is that promise. And so the first reason I think we don't think about this idea of an inheritance very often is because we think it's too far out there and we think it, there's, there's too much pain in between here and there. But God answers that objection by saying, no, I've, I've given my spirit as a promise, as assurance that you will. And that spirit doesn't only promise and assure, but he also equips. But what's the second reason why we don't think about this idea of an inheritance too often? Well, I think perhaps maybe because it's somewhat hard to define, at least concretely. In other words, it's, it's, it's hard to define actually, actually what this inheritance is. But this, this term, guarantee, I think is helpful. I think it helps us argue from, a, from lesser to greater as to what, what our inheritance will be like and therefore give us some kind of, put some color on the page as to what it actually is and, and hopefully give us some hope as to looking forward to it. And it's, I think we find this in the, again, the term guarantee, right? We, we just talked about the nature of a down payment or a guarantee is that it is a portion of that which is to come, right? It points to the reality and promise of what's coming in the future. That's, that's the nature of what a down payment is. But I think this idea of a guarantee, especially in these kind of spiritual terms, also communicates really the goodness of that which is to come. Not only the promise of that which is to come, but the goodness of that which is to come. I think it's helpful to think of this, this down payment of the Holy Spirit as really being in the same currency as the inheritance that we will receive in the future. Right? When, you, when you bought a house and you went to the bank and said, I'd like to buy a house, well, they said, well, I'll need this percent down, right? this much money down in US dollars. And so on closing day, you go to the lawyer's office and you give them a check for X amount of US dollars. The expectation is not only that the down payment will be in that same currency, but that the payments will be in that same currency. I think it's helpful to think of that, that kind of idea of the, the currency of the Holy Spirit as guarantee being the same as the currency of the inheritance which we shall receive. Right? The goodness, in other words, to, to put it back into the text language, the goodness of the Holy Spirit dwelling in God's people points to the greater goodness of the inheritance that we will receive on the day of redemption, but in order to understand that, right, we really have to kind of have a really good appreciation for the Holy Spirit himself. In order to use the Holy Spirit to argue from the lesser to the greater, not that he's lesser, but to argue for the, for the wonderful inheritance that we will have in the future, we really have to kind of first have an understanding of the goodness of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, have we ever considered what our lives look like, would look like, without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right. Some of us remember the days before our, our change, the change that God brought about, our regeneration. But if we have trouble remembering back that far, which I'm sure some of us do, the Bible defines you know, what life is like without the Spirit for us, right? It's like, it's like a, full, a life full of sexual immorality, of impurity, of sensuality, of idolatry, of sorcery, of enmity, of strife, of jealousy, of fits of anger of rivalries, and dissensions, and divisions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and things like that. that. That's what life looks like apart from the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also shows us what life is like with the Holy Spirit, and we, can, we should be able to look into our hearts, and examine our lives, and, and look at what the Holy Spirit is doing, right? What is life like with the Holy Spirit? Right, it brings with it love and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These things, right, it's not us that are bearing those. It's the Spirit who is bearing those things. And so, so to kind of build some appreciation for the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer, it's really helpful sometimes to stop and think, right, have I really loved someone lately? Well, the only way I've been able to do that is because the Holy Spirit has, has enabled me to do that and has given me the power and strength to do that. Have I been at peace lately? Well, that's the work of the Spirit. Have I been patient lately? Well, that's the work of the Spirit. Have I been kind lately? Well, that's the work of the Spirit, and so on and so forth. And so I think by, by demonstrating the, the value And the worth of the Spirit in our lives, we also kind of get a glimpse into the value and spirit of our inheritance. We have a very high view of the Spirit at work in our lives. I think that'll give us a a higher view of our inheritance, which we shall receive in the future. The Spirit at work in our lives in the here and now, is a really good and sweet and comforting thing. And though we may overlook that, The Bible doesn't overlook that. Notice he's he's not just the Holy Spirit here in verse 14. He's the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, pointing to the fact that, that Old Testament saints and believers looked forward to this Holy Spirit. They longed for him. They looked for him. They wanted him. Why? Because he is good, because he is wonderful, because he is sweet and comforting and encouraging. The Spirit really is wonderful. And while he is wonderful, his goodness and his wonderfulness gives us a taste of that which is to come in our inheritance. And in other words, we don't really have to wonder kind of out here in the ether what this inheritance is or guess at how good it may be. God has already hinted at it and explained it and really given us a definition for really how good it is in the person of his Holy Spirit, right, in the down payment of the third person of the Trinity. God's grace tastes good now in the Holy Spirit. And that goodness of the Holy Spirit points further into the future of the goodness of our inheritance. And so I would encourage us not only to be awake to the goodness of the Spirit, but also be awake to the goodness of our inheritance, right? To think these wonderful thoughts about God and about his extravagant and exceedingly wonderful grace and to think thoughts about uh, the certainty, the assurance of our salvation and our inheritance, right? To, the, the, the certainty that we will receive that which he has promised. And to think wonderful thoughts about how sweet his gifts truly are. Right, intentionally to set aside, if we set aside 20 minutes a day to think about just one, the wonderfulness of God, And how much would that change our resting faces over the course of the next five years? God, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, demonstrates God is wonderfully wonderful. He is good. He demonstrates that that he's not only good, but he's exceedingly wonderful good he's exceedingly great and in conclusion I'd like to draw kind of draw the this blessing kind of uh, back together and give one more demonstration of God's goodness God's not ashamed right he's not ashamed of telling us of exposing right why he does the things that he does Why does he save his people? Why does he predestine them from before the foundation of the world? Why does he give his son to them? Why does he spill his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, of our trespasses? Why does God take the time to set aside an inheritance for us, for his people? It says it explicitly in verse 6, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. It says it explicitly in verse 12. Right, so that we who are the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It says it again in verse 14. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inqu- acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. God discloses, open disclosure. Why, is, why does he do these things? In order to glorify himself, it's obvious. Right, the ultimate reason why God does anything that he does is, that his, is so, so that he might glorify himself. But his self-glorifying, really the benefits of his self-glorifying are not exclusive. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Yes, God glorifies himself, But at the same time, he gives his people a wonderful inheritance. The same thing in verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, Yes, God glorifies himself, but what does he do in the meantime? And, and, and what does he do while he's glorifying himself? He draws his people to himself through the truth of the gospel, the gospel of our salvation. Right? The benefits of God's self-glorifying are not exclusive. Right? It means that, that, that the byproduct of God glorifying himself is the, his people receiving all of these spiritual blessings. And so let me close with one concluding application. As I mentioned in the beginning, there are no imperatives in verses three through 14. But what we do have in verses three through 14 is the Holy Spirit showing us who God is and what he is like by demonstrating and explaining in detail the, the wonders of his grace. And so let me encourage you not to just read these things, but to think about these things, right? And to feel the emotions that these thoughts provoke. And then to love him and to worship him as a result. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you, indeed, as we read a few moments ago in the Psalms, that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever forever. The New Testament version of that is that you have saved your people by your grace and you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. You have given us your spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as assurance and as a taste of the goodness which is our future. And so Lord, we would ask and we would pray that these spiritual realities would be real in our minds and hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing number 429.